As we begin, our text, I will look at real quickly and read, but open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read our text from Luke's account. In Luke 23, 33, we just have this one verse. Uh, We are called Calvary Chapel because of this verse. And it says that when they had come to the place called Calvary, uh, otherwise known as Golgotha, uh, there they crucified him. And the criminals, plural, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So Jesus would have been in the middle of the crucifixion, which was capital punishment under Roman law. But I started thinking about uh, during communion as we, you know, contemplate and meditate on, on the immensity of the suffering that actually took place. And what we call Good Friday, we were talking in the back room, why did we call it good when it was such a tremendous amount of agony and suffering that took place on that day? Well, the first reason is because we have the first prophecy of this day. If you're open to Genesis chapter 3, if you're new and visiting, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you so that you can follow along. Um, we have Adam and Eve have sinned. God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, as he does so, in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, is a reference to, the first reference to the Lord Jesus, he shall bruise your head, and you, me to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. And we find here, um, actually the, the victory of the Lord taking place, but also the suffering that the Lord would would go through. Um, Isaiah tells us that he was marred more than any man. And I struggle with that verse. I mean, is that literal? Was he marred more than any man? We know that because of this man's sin, the consequences for man, if you go down to verse uh, 17 to Adam, He said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and it will bring forth thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And there, there, evidently before that there was no thorns and there was no thistles. But because of sin, actually the earth was actually cursed. So when you plowed your field, there would be the thistles. When you weed your garden, there's always thistles, unless you have the right kind of gloves on. But there wasn't thorns and thistles before the curse. So we have two things in Genesis 3 as we begin our study on this Good Friday 2018, and that is the victory is already foretold, that Jesus would be victorious over the serpent, over the devil but not before the Lord himself would suffer greatly. But part of it also was that there's going to be, in the victory process, when they mocked Jesus by putting on the robe, but remember then they took a crown of thorns and they placed it upon him. That is very symbolic, and it's a picture. It's a picture of God taking sin, the curse, and actually placing it literally on his son. And this goes back to Genesis. Again, it's just one of those wonders. As we study God's word, we go, oh, I've never seen that before. 
but it's all something that reinforces our faith that this this event took place and it was meaning and purpose for that crown of thorns being put on uh, Jesus' head. Um, I have another one that the Lord (laughs) gave me in the back room, but I'll get to that when we talk about, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, You know, memorable moments. Uh, Today, um, today my mom would have been 88 years old. She was born on 3-30-30. So I got my calculator out because I'm getting old and I couldn't do it that quick in my head. (laughs) And I figured out that uh, she went to be with the Lord September 28th, 2013, five days before Pastor Chuck went to be with the Lord. And, um, uh, you know, you think and you meditate on loved ones and uh, being reunited. Um, My mom loved Jesus with all of her heart, always witnessing. Um, We'd be in a grocery store, and she'd be handing out God of wonders. And if I was with her, she said, you know, my pastor's a son. And she and you can watch him if you want to live stream. And this is in the grocery stores we're checking out. And that was just mom. And um, the point of that is the fondness of looking back and remembering. Uh, that's what we're doing today, but in a in a way that there was great sorrow when someone passes. There's great hope that it it uh, will bring. Last Sunday was the triumphal entry, and so we're making our way through the week of what Jesus did. We told that after he made the triumphal entry, he went into the temple and he turned over the tables because he didn't want any interaction or business going on inside the house of God. It's here, we're here to worship the Lord and study his word. Now that's a good place for an amen. We're here to study God's word and to worship him, period. So we find that there's debate on when did Jesus die. Was it on a Friday? Was it on a Thursday? Some think Wednesday. And if I got into that debate right now, we would be here till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Let me just say that for now, Jesus died on the cross, and as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Jesus said, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he said to his disciples several times, and then I'll be resurrected. Now, the difficulty that people have with this, and actually people can get into a debate and argument over it, but it's predicated on how uh, the Jewish custom Mark their days. Everybody here knows the song, sunrise, sunset, right? So that's how they mark it, and that has a lot to do with it. It also has a lot to do with it being a double um, Sabbath. Uh, the preparation, the Passover was there. So it's lengthy, and if you want the answer to that, it's very easily Googled. And we can miss the forest for the trees here by getting sidetracked on that. So can we just say, for sake of debate and not arguing that Jesus uh, was in the grave for three days and three nights simply because he said so. If we look at it through our English understanding of that, we might become confused, but not if you understand it from their Jewish perspective. Okay, this morning, 
Uh, I said to myself, don't say this morning, whatever you do. This afternoon, um, we're going to look at what Jesus said on the cross and his final words. I've been around bedsides several times with people when they actually left this world and went to be with the Lord. And um, I remember my last words with my dad, but he didn't die after um, um, I, he was still alive for several months after I was visiting him. But I remember his last words. And what he said, uh, I said, I said, Dad, what, what if we never see each other again until we get to heaven? Is there anything you want me to say? He said, son, in my office there's two envelopes. There's one for you that I want you to read at my funeral. And then there's one for Pastor John Higgins. And he's going to be doing the, the service. So you go in there and get him. So I went out and got him. And I read what my dad wanted his last words to be to his friends. Even when he was, was gone to be with Jesus, he was concerned for people that he loved who were still alive. And, you know, what Karl Marx, when he died on March 14th, 1883, his housekeeper came to him and said, tell me your last words and I'll write them down. And Marx replied, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And then there's P.T. Barnum. Uh, His dying words were, what were today's receipts? Sort of like the bigger man that was building the bigger barns, and the Lord says, you fool. Today your soul's required of you, and you're worried about the daily receipts? means nothing. Dust in the wind. The last words of... um, Napoleon Bonaparte said, Chief of the Army, living in his glory right up to the end. That glory was soon going to be stunted. Charles Spurgeon said his last words, Jesus died for me. John Wesley, the founder of uh, the Methodist uh, uh, denomination, the best of all is God is with us. On this Good Friday, we'll consider the seven statements of Jesus' last words from the cross. His seven last words from the cross, these statements are very important to us, not only because of the person who spoke them, but also because of the place where they were said. When our Lord was doing his greatest work on earth, he was uttering some of his greatest words. These seven last words from the cross are a window that enable us to look into eternity and see the very heart of God. Seven, by the way, is the number of completion. It is repeated more than any other number in the scriptures, and it is a number of um, completion. So as we begin, let's turn to Luke 23. And um, the day progressed. He had his time before Pilate. Pilate declared him innocent. I find no fault with this man. And because it was a Passover, the custom was to let a prisoner go. You guys can have whoever you want. So they got a guy named Barabbas, um, who was a murderer and a thief, and they could choose. And he says, I can release. That's a custom. I can give you Barabbas, or I can give you Jesus. And those that wanted the Lord dead incited the crowd. 
and yelled, give us Barabbas. Well, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And uh, Pilate's wife came and warned him, said, don't go there. I had a dream last night that this is a righteous man. So Pilate, when all is said and done, tried to wash his hands clean of his indictment. And the Bible says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. What does that mean? Also in the Old Testament, first prophecy, one of the first prophecies about Jesus. It meant that um, capital punishment wouldn't be given during the time of Jesus. The scepter means authority. The Jews wanted to stone him. That was their form of capital punishment, but they didn't have the authority. So only the Romans had the authority. That's why they had to bring him before Pilate. So Pilate judged him. And as a result, um, to our verse, that is our text, they brought him to Calvary, called Golgotha. And again, um, you know, being able to to be at this spot, um, it's beyond description. Just looking at the focal point of where I believe with all my heart this took place. There is a place on Mount Moriah at 777 meters up, the highest point of Mount Moriah, where I believe Abraham offered Isaac as an offering, the very same place. Abraham actually prophesied. He didn't go through with killing with Isaac, remember? He said it will be seen someday in the Mount of the Lord, but not today. So he was prophesying about this day, but in the same spot, which I believe is Calvary, that is called um, Mount Moriah. In Luke 23, the first words that Jesus said from the cross in verse 33 and 34, after the two thieves were there, there's verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they divided his garments, and they cast lots. Father, forgive them. This is what Stephen said. As he walked with Jesus, as he saw what Jesus would do in any given situation, here's our first application for you and I of um, praying for those that spitefully use you when, um, you know, when they mock you for being a Christian. Let's face it, they don't, have an, they don't have a clue what they're doing. If they did have an understanding, they would never say such a thing. If they had any idea, these Roman soldiers that were putting the nails in Jesus' hand, that someday they're going to sit before him and be judged by a, a living God, of course they wouldn't have done it. They didn't know who Jesus was. But here he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Judgment did not come upon the Romans at this time. Pastor Chuck always used to say, who killed Jesus? It was those Jews, wasn't it? Oh, no, it was the Romans. And Chuck had always said, no, it wasn't the Romans, wasn't the Jews. I killed Jesus. I'm the one who put him there. And if I was the only guy living on this planet, I would have been the one driving in the nails. That's what, what uh, the Bible declares about our nature. You see, God does not judge sin immediately. God, in his mercy, postpones his judgment because his son prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You and I are living in a day of grace, not a day of judgment. 
a day when God is speaking to reconcile lost sinners to himself. Yes, this is a wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed, his first words. God answered that prayer, and he could forgive you today if you're not with him, if you don't know him. Charles Wesley wrote in one of his hymns, Five Bleeding Wounds He Bears Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, Father, forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. You know, one moment after a person dies, um, there are many different beliefs on what happens, but the scriptures are clear. It says once to die and then the judgment for the lost. Now, if you're a believer, the Bible is clear about that. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that when this earthly tent is destroyed, you know, it's a piece of meat that your soul is and spirit is inside. When this goes, it says we know there's a certainty there. We know that we have a, a home not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens, and it's never going to get tired. It's never going to get hungry. You can still eat if you want to, <laughs> which Jesus did with his resurrected body. And um, it's eternal. So to be absent from the body for a Christian is to be immediately be with the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep or, or any of that. But for the, for the person who dies in her sins, we'll talk about the rich man and Lazarus in a little bit, they temporarily are taken to Sheol, or a place called hell. And then we read in, in Revelation that death in hell will be taken to the great white throne judgment. And now they, they don't die. The Bible calls it the second death. Blessed are you that are not part of the second death, which is a Bible study within itself. First words from the cross, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. The second words were to one of the thieves that was taking this all in. And so if we're still in Luke 23, let's read verses 35 through 43. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers mocked him, and, and coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself, and by the way, save me too, if you're really the Son of God. But the other one rebuked him. He'd been watching, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, now this is the second statement from the cross. If you have the old King James, it says, verily, verily. My new King James says, assuredly, I say to you, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, 
paradise cannot be heaven. Well, what are you saying, Dwight? Well, he said today. He said today you're going to be with me in paradise. But Jesus isn't going to rise from the grave for three days, and he tells Mary when she puts that bear hug on him, Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So what is he talking about here about today? Well, it eliminates going to heaven. That can't happen for three days. So where the question is, is uh, paradise. I won't have you turn there, but I'm going to quote Ephesians 4, verse 8 at this time. Therefore, he says, when he ascended, when Jesus went up on high, it says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this, this comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And what does it mean that, that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended, Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill, fulfill all things. So before Jesus went to heaven... The Bible says he actually descended into very lowest parts of the earth. Well, the question, what in the world is in the lowest parts of the earth? And the answer to that is found in Luke chapter 16. So I'm going to have you turn over to Luke 16. And we have the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Two people. It doesn't matter at all whether one's rich or one's poor. It's just that one had faith and one did not. So I'm picking it up in uh, verse 19. And we find there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And then there was a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. He just desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell down from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, remember, until Jesus dies on the cross, nobody can go to heaven. And he is, it, it tells us here, before he ascended, he descended. And in Isaiah 61, it says he set the captives free. So what we have a reference to here is a place of comfort. It's Abraham's bosom. So it's all those people who died in faith that were waiting to be set free from a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. But the rich man died and was buried. And then it says in being in torment, for those people who who think that when it's over, it's over, don't worry about it, you know, just do your thing now because when it's over, it's over. Well, when it's over, it's not over. When it's over, it's only the beginning. It's a beginning forever and ever and ever and ever. Once to die and then in judgment. The man is completely aware because he's spirit and soul. That tells us that when a person dies and goes to hell, he's going to be completely aware of all the things he ever said, all the things he ever done. We're told here that he knows he has five brothers, and that's what he's concerned about. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted his eyes and he saw Father Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all that, we can't do it anyway because between the place called Abraham's bosom and Sheol, there's a gulf so that those who want to pass from here can't, nor can those from there pass to here. In other words, if you're in Abraham's bosom, you can't go to Sheol, and if you're in Sheol, you can't go to Abraham's bosom. And that had socked the guy in the head like you couldn't believe. The reality, he's just been told something, that there's nothing he can do about his situation, and that he's going to be there forever. And then he changes the subject, and he knows that he has other brothers And he says, then he said, I beg you, therefore, understanding his situation, if I can't, he says, I beg you, therefore, that you would send him or Lazarus to my father's house. You see, I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. We would say witness to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Uh, Good Friday should be a day of encouragement of the realization that people die every day. Mm, hard place for an amen, but give me one anyway. It's reality. You know, it's tax time, isn't it? Taxes and death. You ain't going to avoid it. Unless we're raptured, which I'm preferring. <laughs> but now, all of a sudden, he never had a burden for them before. He was too caught up in his cares with his wealth and his riches. He didn't care if his brothers went to heaven or hell. Now he does. Why? Because he's there. And he knows all too well they're on their way there too. Would you please warn them? Would you just send somebody and tell them the truth, what happens when a person dies? Abraham said to him, well, they have the Bible. That's what I, the way I read this here. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. How many people today have gotten away from their Bible and have latched on to whatever trend is coming or going? Finger in the air, which way is the wind blowing? Oh, we'll believe that now for a while. We'll check out this here. Wind's blowing over there instead of the solid statements where this book can't change. And uh, we have the Bible, let them hear them. But he says, no, I know my brothers. If one goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Show them a miracle. An amazing thing about this is, there was a man named Lazarus who was dead for four days that Jesus raised from the dead. What did the scribes and Pharisees do and say? They said, now we've got to kill Lazarus too because he's a walking witness. Everybody knows he was dead, but now he's alive. So not only do we have to kill Jesus, but we've got to kill Lazarus too. He's too much of a threat to our position. So we've got to kill Lazarus too. What's your point, Dwight? Oh, you can see a miracle. You can even have somebody resurrected. Jesus said in Matthew 24, one of the greatest dangers of the days that we're living in right now is miracles. Signs and wonders that will deceive people. I want to know what you want me to believe if you see a miracle or a sign or a wonder. Oh, there's signs and wonders happening here. Great. What do they want me to believe as a result of it? Is the emphasis going to be on me so I can have a a better life or whatever? Or is it going to bring me to repentance 
and accept Jesus because of the signs and the wonders, um, the gospel is, is clearly proclaimed. So verse 31, he said to him, this is Abraham, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't hear what you have to say when you give them the Bible, the word of God, um, neither will they be persuaded, though the, the one would rise from the dead. Jesus' second words um, to this man is, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isaiah chapter 61. Oh, let's look at it real quick. Just flip over to it. It's not that far. Isaiah 61 is a prophecy. Jesus quoted this when he went to Nazareth and preached in his own synagogue. Isaiah 61, verse 1, he says, The Spirit of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I believe he's speaking of Abraham's bosom. What did Jesus do before he ascended? He descended. He told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me where? In paradise, which is Abraham's bosom. And after he had that three days down there, um, if you're taking notes, it's Matthew chapter 27, verse 52. It says, after Jesus, and it really makes a point of this, clarifying. After Jesus was the first person to be resurrected, it says, then many of the graves in Jerusalem were opened, and many people came out of their graves and went and visited their relatives. Now, how weird is that? Hi, Uncle John, you've been dead for 40 years. What are you doing here? That's what the Bible says. It was foretold. He's going to set the captives free. Thief on the cross? No, today you're going to a place of comfort. Don't worry about a thing. What about this guy? What did he have going for him? Answer, absolutely nothing. Never went to church. Never said the sinner's prayer. He was never baptized. He was a thief. His prayer was, Lord, will you simply remember me? But what did he say? He said, Lord, would you simply remember me? God saw his heart, and his heart was one, we deserve this, you don't. And the only difference between the thief on the cross and me and you is he got caught. Good place for an amen. amen. And uh, so the, the second saying on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, he was there just for two days. Because on that next day, that chamber is now empty. And when the gospel is presented today and somebody dies and they're a believer, like that guy would have been, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. There's no such thing as Abraham's bosom or a place called paradise today. But having said that, after all these years, that rich man is still there, waiting his day in court. The third thing Jesus said, let's go to John chapter 19 in the New Testament. John 19, verses 25 and 27. Pick it up in verse 25 in John 19. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, 
the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, this is how John always referred to himself, standing by um, him, he, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, as the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own house. When Jesus was first dedicated in the temple, um, Joseph and Mary and Jesus came in. There was a guy there named Simeon. And um, the Holy Spirit had spoken to this guy and told Simeon, he said, Simeon, you're not going to die. You're not going to leave this planet until you actually get to see the Messiah. And so he was there every day waiting, 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 and all of a sudden the day came. And he looks, and here comes Mary and Joseph with Jesus being dedicated. And he looked at her, and he said, and Simon said to Mary, he prophesied. He said, a sword shall pierce through your own soul. And that's what she's experiencing right here. Any mother going through this, um, seeing uh, what's happening to her son. And what's interesting to note is that we find Mary at the beginning of the Gospel of John and at the end of the Gospel of John. We find her in John 2, and we find her in John 19. In John 2, we have the first miracle of the turning the water into wine. But now here she is at the cross. But the two incidents are in contrast. In John 2, Mary is attending a wedding and is involved with a feast. There's full of joy. In John 19, she's involved with the sorrow of a funeral. In John 2, the Lord Jesus displayed his power. He manifested his glory and he turned the water into wine. But in John 19, our Lord Jesus died in weakness and in shame. He could have exercised his power as he did in John 2, but he didn't. Had he done so, he would not have completed the work of salvation. He did not come to save himself. He came to save us, and he allowed it to take place. You know, the Lord says, nobody's taken my life from me. I'm going to lay it down, and I'm going to raise it up. Remember when they came to arrest him? Who are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for Jesus. I am. (laughs) When he said, I am, they all fell down. Good time to go home, boys. Well, they got back up, and he said, what do you want? They said, we're looking for Jesus. I told you, I am. Why did these guys fall down? The Lord was simply reaffirming his words. Nobody's going to take my life. What I'm doing here, I'm allowing this to take place. Don't think your 400 soldiers here are doing anything. You have no power. So he demonstrated his power, and then he allowed himself to be arrested. He had the power to lay it down, and he says, I have the power to raise it back up again. So we find Mary looking at um, Jesus on the cross, so we find that fulfillment where Simon said that a sword would pierce her, and then the instruction and care. You know, a lot of the people in our fellowship here are dealing with taking care 
care of aging parents. And, um, you know, moving them into care centers and so on and so forth. They don't want to leave their home. I remember the day my grandma Crandall knew it was her last time. She was 99 years old, and she had to leave the farm that she'd been on her whole life. And we were taking her to a nursing home. And uh, she said, oh, i got to go downstairs in the basement. I'll be right back. Well, she went down to the basement, and she had no intentions of coming back out of that basement. <laughs> None. And Mom said, Dwight, go down and get her. And she's just standing there, just walking around the basement. I said, Grandma, we have to go. She said, no. And um, you guys know what I'm talking about. They, they, they do not want to leave home. And yet, they have to. And so here's Jesus understanding that he's not going to be there. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, he entrusts John with her. And it tells us from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. John, Jesus was entrusting. Shows a lot of the humanity of our Lord caring at a time like this for his mothers, just like many of you are right now. You're making plans and dealing with it. It isn't easy. But unfortunately, it's something that has to be done. Number four, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27 and verses 45 and 46, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So it's right now, it's a little after two, and darkness would have been, if you were in Israel during this time, there would have been a darkness in the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22. And I'm briefly going to go over a psalm that probably gives us more detail of the suffering that Jesus went through on Good Friday than is recorded for us in the Gospels. Psalm 22, verse 1, was fulfilled when Jesus said this foresaying from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from helping me, and from the words of my groaning? Go down to verse 7. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. If you're the Messiah, if you're God, then come down from the cross. Down in verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And my strength is dried up like potshed. And my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of the earth. For dogs, that's another word, for Gentiles have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This was written before Romans came into power, and that was their form of capital punishment. And I count all my bones. They look at me and stare. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm speaking of of the, the suffering that Jesus went through 
But the greatest suffering at all, and this preacher can't put it into words because I can't fathom it. You see, he and the Father and the Holy Spirit have always been one. We call it the Trinity. Never. Now, I can comprehend in my mind's eye going forward and future forever and ever and ever and ever. But what my brain can't do, it can't wrap my head around going backwards forever and never, never, ever, ever having a beginning. Well, there's never been a beginning. We live in time, space, and matter. But in heaven, there is no time. It's ever present always. And you say, I don't understand that. Well, join the club. <laughs> join the club. God says, my ways are past finding out. And you're just going to have to accept there's things that you're going to have to take by faith simply because I say so. Okay, Lord. This is the first time ever that there's been separation. God cannot look upon sin or be involved in sin. He turned away as the sins of the entire world were being placed upon Jesus Christ. The sun refused to shine. Now this smacks of the judgment of that took place in, in Egypt. I think this darkness at the cross was the darkness of the solemnness of the moment. The just died for the unjust. The innocent lamb of God died for guilty sinners. In the book of Exodus, there was a great darkness. It was the ninth plague that God sent to Egypt. There was three days of darkness, a darkness so thick it could be felt. There was a darkness over Egypt before the final judgment of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. Behold the Lord Jesus in three hours of darkness. I wonder if God was not saying that this was an hour of solemn judgment. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now we're going back to Genesis 3.15. Oh yeah, you're going to bruise him, but you're not going to defeat him. He's going, he's going to be victorious. Now the prince of the world will be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Our Lord's death on the cross was a very solemn, serious, and holy event. The darkness of that day, the Lamb of God dying for our sins and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think would be the Father's perspective on the other end? It might surprise you. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there. I'm flipping to Isaiah chapter 53. And it tells us exactly what the father was feeling emotionally when his son was on the cross. And this will probably surprise you. In speaking of this event, in verse 10 of chapter 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The father looking at the agony, knowing that the only way that he's going to be satisfied with my sins being forgiven is that the price has to be paid. And as he looks at his son on the cross, he says, I'm satisfied with that. I can forgive anyone here 
for anything you've ever done. So don't ever think you've gone too far that God could ever forgive you. No. Because of what he looked down upon, it says it pleased him. He says, okay, I'll accept that. I mean, accept this offering. And um, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. Notice it doesn't say all. There's doctrines out there that says it's universalism. Everybody's going to heaven. We're bringing James B. DeYoung here from Washington, a theologian. And his subject is going to be universalism. And he's going to be going after William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, which is all about universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. You don't have to worry about a thing. And he's here to tell us, no, not everybody's going to heaven. He died for many. Okay, All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But all who reject him uh, will not be. For he shall bear their iniquities. There's the gospel getting right there. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, there was one on each side, three. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's go to the next saying, the fifth one. We need to turn to John chapter 19. John 19 is just two words. In verses 28 and 29, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And this is my main point as we go through the New Testament, pointing this out every time we read it, that the scriptures might have to be fulfilled. Said, I thirst. And um, he's quoting what, where we just were in Psalm 22. Don't turn back there. I'll just read it to you. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. And my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. What he went through on the cross... Um, no man has ever gone through that. But when, it was 1972, and I was involved with um, a good Bible-believing church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And we had an evangelist come through. And he wanted to dramatize the crucifixion. And he needed somebody to play Jesus. Seeing that I was the only long-haired, bearded guy in the church, guess who got to play Jesus? And one by one, um, they, they um, uh, put a crown of thorns on. He had a cross, a uh, large, large one. And I got to tell you, after half an hour of having your hands out like this, and they were tied up there, I was in pain. It hurt. And uh, they had different people. He was doing the speaking. And um, my, my job at the end was to go through these seven things on the cross. I'll never forget it. He liked me because I had long hair and a beard, and he said, you want to go with me to Chicago? And uh, I said, sure, why not? So I was on the road with this guy for a while doing this, and um, I thanked the Lord for the experience. 
because you have an inkling of what um, the, the, the agony in just the smallest form, just holding your hands up for a half an hour and what that was like. Not mentioning the fact of, of the sheer thirst and the heat and everything that he was going through um, on that day. And so he says, I thirst. This was the fifth thing Jesus said from the cross. The sixth thing is in John 19 also, verse 30, where when Jesus had received the sour wine, now he can speak. Remember, his, according to Psalm 22, he can't speak. Why? His tongue is connected to his jaw. And so once he had enough moisture, he could loose his tongue, and he says, it is finished. And most people... At the age of 33, I look at Josh back there. He's 32, and he's got all this spunk, and he's just getting ready to go, and he's a self-starter, and, and he likes to fellowship. You guys know that, right? And he's just getting started in a lot of ways. He just had a baby. And what often we don't realize is I'm double that plus one, <laughs> that at 33, most people are saying, It's the beginning. But at the age of 33, Jesus was saying, it's over. It's finished. He did not say, I am finished. It was not a cry of defeat, but it was a shout of victory. In the Greek language in which John wrote, this verse was one word with ten letters. It's the word tetelestai. And it basically means paid in full. Perhaps this is a new word to you. It means it is finished and it stands finished and, it's, and it will always be finished. Since salvation is a finished work, we dare not add anything to it or take anything from it. I want to amen here. Amen. The work is finished and we had nothing to do with it. We're the guy on the cross, okay, that deserve just like the thief did. That's what we deserve. But instead, he turns it around, gives us his righteousness, and he takes us, and he takes our sins. There's only one way for salvation. It is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord cried to Telestai, it is finished, it's a similar word shouted by a faithful Savior about a finished work. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heavenly exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. Another place for an amen. Amen. The work's been done, gang. At a great cross, at a great place where he now had come to the place, his hour, and he had finished the work that his father had sent him to do. The last one is in Luke chapter 23. Let's pick it up in verse 34. Um, uh, 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now this is significant. This veil could be only gone into once a year, and only by the high priest. And only after he carefully had been examined to make sure his sins were temporarily set aside through sacrifice and offering. They would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle just in case he forgot to confess a sin. 
and you go into the presence of the Holy of Holies as a high priest, you better make sure all is well. Because if you die back there, who's going to go get them? <laughs> no volunteers. So they actually made provision that he had bells on his garments. And if those bells stopped digging and there was no more noise, the reason for the rope was actually to pull him out. What I'm saying is true. It's verified when we visit, when we visit Jerusalem. What I'm saying is a holy, awesome thing that you just don't flippantly say, okay, you know, the big man in the sky or my friend JC and thing like that. It's not, it's not respectful of the office of our Lord and Savior. Yes, you're his bride. Yes, you're his friend. But we dasn't ever be flippant with who he is, that he's worthy of our, our, our praise and our love and our entire life because of what he did. But to have the temple rent, this veil, it says from the top to the bottom. And um, that means that God was the one who was doing the renting. And all of a sudden, there's nothing to separate man from the Holy of Holies. What does that mean? It says, now we're to come boldly into his presence. Come boldly? Me? Knowing me as much as I know me? Come boldly? Yeah, I can do it for one reason. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And my God says he ripped that veil down so that I could come boldly, not right into his presence, better than that, right inside of me. First Corinthians 3, don't you realize you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? And so this final um, a statement in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Remember he said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to lift it up. He also had the power to say, okay, spirit, you can go now. And they were surprised that he died so quickly. Um, And the other two prisoners, they broke their legs to hasten to death because in order to breathe, you actually had to move yourself up and down to get air in. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he had already died. But just to make sure, they took a spear put it in his side, and blood and water came out. And he was dead. Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body. And um, next to Calvary, there is a garden tomb that fits all the qualifications for it being the place where Jesus would have been buried that day. He died actually. He died confidently. He died willingly. And finally, he died victoriously. He cried out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished the work that God gave him to do. And when he gave up his spirit, several miracles took place. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The ground opened the way into the Holy of Holies. Some graves were opened. Now I want to clarify what I just said. Only after Jesus arose from the grave were these graves opened in Matthew 27, verse 52. And some of the saints were resurrected. Jesus Christ proved himself to be victorious over sin, the torn veil, over death, the open graves. There was even an earthquake that shook the area. Reminds us of the earthquake at Mount Sinai when God came down and gave the law. But this earthquake did not announce that 
um, the announcement there of the law. It announced the fulfillment of the law. The Lord Jesus died victoriously, conquering sin and death and hell. The Lord Jesus died for sinners. He died actually, he died confidently, he died willingly, and he died victoriously. He did not die for his own sin because he had none. He died for the sins of the world. Someday, you are going to die. Usually people die just the way they lived. To be sure, God can work and keep, people can be saved at the last minute, like the thief on the cross. If you know somebody who's checking out shortly and are not saved, and you want a witnessing verse, use the thief on the cross, that's what I do. Because they're looking at themselves, How come, why, why should I be a hypocrite now? I've been a jerk my whole life. I've been a thief my whole life. I've been a womanizer my whole life. Why, why should I change now? And um, you can explain to him, this guy on the cross had nothing going for him. And he's in heaven right now. He didn't have one good work. He was a thief. And he even said himself he deserved what he's getting. And um, if you have that opportunity, that's what I use with dead side, bedside patients that, that are ready to check out. Um, we'll close with, you can die confidently if, if, you're, if you don't know Jesus in a personal way with the assurance that you're going to your father's house. You can die with the promise of God's word to give you grace and strength and comfort. And you can die in the safest place in all the universe, in the loving hands of our Lord and Savior and our Heavenly Father. What a wonderful thing it is to die. Is that an oxymoron? (laughs) Not for you or me. Not for you or me. The Bible says in the Psalms, Blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Hey, you get to come home. What a wonderful thing it is to die with confidence and assurance, able to say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord Jesus, how grateful we are for this event that marks all time, when in that moment in human history you decided that you have come to your hour and finally come. And you willingly went to the cross and suffered greatly. And that curse of the thorns, that crown of thorns that you wore representing sin was placed upon you. And now that the work has been done and is finished, we're free and we're grateful. And we don't dare ever think we could add to it by doing some good work or uh, accomplish some feat other than glorying and offering to you the sacrifice of praise, which we do today as we remember Good Friday and all that you've done for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.